0: involved in our study on Sunday nights at the present time of Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. His second epistle period as the first Thessalonian letter was believed to be the first epistle Paul ever penned and the second one was written shortly after the first letter, somewhere around A.D. 52 or 53, writing to a church that he had a great deal of love and respect for and in which he had a great deal of confidence as he expresses uh, not only in one place, but more than one place. And in the section of this second epistle, which we will study tonight, he expresses again the confidence that he had in these brethren at Thessalonica to be faithful to the Lord. We're going to look at the first five verses tonight of Second Thessalonians chapter 3 as we near the conclusion of Paul's second epistle to these brethren. As he writes... Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Those five verses from the New King James translation as Paul nears the conclusion of this second epistle. He says finally, but we have looked at that word finally, it doesn't mean the final uh, thing necessarily, but literally the idea that for the rest, but for the rest of what I have to say, in other words, or what I am writing to you, but It is drawing to a conclusion, this epistle to the Thessalonians, and we learn of their establishment, of course, the church that was established in Acts chapter 17, and the difficulties that uh, arose there in the establishment of the church and the continuation of the church there as the Jews, uh, who did not believe, were opposed to the gospel and persecuted these brethren at Thessalonica. They had challenges In their lives and Paul knew that they had challenges as he himself had challenges and so he penned these epistles to them from the city of Corinth we believe around AD 52 or 53 to encourage them and as we have studied before by way of brief review to correct some misapprehensions that they had misapprehensions about the second coming of Christ and the idea that they had mistakenly that he was going to come again right away and that because they had lost loved ones who had died, even though they had died in Christ, that those loved ones, because they had died and were not alive when the Lord came again, that they would lose their reward. But in the first epistle, as well as in the second one, he has written to reassure them that indeed those loved ones who died in Christ have not lost their reward. But he reminded them in the fourth chapter of the first epistle, as you recall, beginning at verse 13, that indeed they should not sorrow as others who have no hope. And then he described the process by which the dead will be raised before the living are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and thus to always be with the Lord. So they did not need to be discouraged or concerned or worried about the destiny of their faithful loved ones who had died in Christ. That was a primary theme. Of these two epistles, but so many other things that we can glean great lessons from as Paul writes to reassure them. And the lesson that Lord willing we'll look at next time reminds us of what we often call the forgotten commandment, as he will deal with the matter of discipline and the fact that those who are in need of discipline need to be disciplined by the church. But here he says, finally, literally, the idea being for the rest of what I have to say as he nears this conclusion of this epistle. Brethren. I want to stop right there with that word brethren. I have mentioned before that we never need to take lightly the use of that word brethren or brother in the singular, brethren in the plural. And of course, it would include uh, the brothers and the sisters as he addresses them here. But Paul had a special, uh, had a special relationship Uh, with those who were his brothers and sisters in Christ. He understood the special nature of that relationship. He understood the closeness of that relationship, the bond that they had one with another, and he used that word time and again. Even in this epistle, he uses it seven times. In the first Thessalonian epistle, he used it 17 times. A total of 24 times in these two relatively short epistles, he refers to the Christians at Thessalonica as brethren, as his brothers and sisters in Christ, a relationship that he treasured, a relationship that he considered precious indeed, with the understanding that Christ is our elder brother, that we, because we are brothers in Christ, that Christ is our elder brother as well as our high priest, as our mediator, and that we enjoy a special relationship and a wonderful hope that those who cannot be called brethren do not have and that they cannot appreciate. Finally, brethren, brethren, pray for us. Prayer was something that was vitally important to the Apostle Paul. It was important that he pray for others, and he has mentioned in more than one of his epistles, obviously, the fact that he was praying for the brethren at Thessalonica, praying for the brethren at Philippi, praying for the brothers and sisters at Corinth, praying for those at Rome, praying for all those to whom he penned his epistles. But on more than one occasion, in other places as well as here in this epistle, he covets the prayers of his brothers and sisters, recognizing that even though he was a great apostle, even though he was a great soldier of Christ, he was one who needed their prayers. And so he called upon them, petitioned them, pray for us. And the indication is, in the tense in which this word pray is found, it's a present imperative, which means it's an imperative. I want you to be sure and do it, but it's also in the present tense. Continual action is indicated. I want you, please, keep on praying for us. But what was the nature of the prayer that he coveted from his brothers and sisters? Was it a prayer for his Uh, personal welfare? Was it a a prayer that was based on a selfish desire? Absolutely not. He specifies, pray for us, what? Not specifically for me and my health necessarily, but pray rather that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you. We learn something from that petition about Prayers that he coveted on the part of his brethren. We learned something that we should be praying for ourselves. That we should emulate the sentiment that Paul presented here as he asked for their prayers. And that our prayers should include regularly and fervently a prayer that the word of God would run swiftly and be glorified. And notice he added, just as it is with you. He was commending them... the fact that the word of God was glorified in them how so by their lives it was being glorified by the way they were living their lives they were living examples of the gospel that's one way in which the gospel is glorified obviously the gospel is glorified when men and women hear it and receive it and obey it that brings glory to the gospel and glory to God and glory to Christ But the gospel is continually glorified after one obeys it, and by living it in one's life, that individual, as he lives the Christian life, glorifies the gospel. There's a passage in one of Paul's other epistles, in Philippians chapter 2, that relates to this matter of glorifying the gospel by the lives that we live. It's not enough to glorify the gospel by telling the gospel to others, that's important. Not enough to glorify it by teaching it or by praying for that gospel that it would run swiftly, but we must make sure that our lives reflect the gospel of Christ. Because if our lives do not reflect the gospel, then anything we do to try to propagate the gospel is going to meet with deaf ears, fall on deaf ears. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16, Paul writes to the Philippians here, Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, listen to it, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Then he goes on, holding fast or holding forth the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. What is his plea for the Philippians? What is he saying to them? Do all things without murmuring and disputing. That's not going to bring glory to the gospel. In fact, it will do just the opposite. If we are known as a people who dispute and strive with one another and murmur and complain, that will not glorify the gospel. In fact, it will bring shame to the gospel. Become harmless, blameless, children of God without fault, not sinless, but blameless, he says, and harmless, children of God, without fault, where are you doing this? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And what are you to do in the midst of that crooked and perverse generation? You are to shine as lights in this world. How do you do that? By holding fast and holding forth the word of life. And if you do that, The gospel is glorified. The gospel is glorified in you and through you as you live your life in accordance with that gospel. And if your words do not comport with your actions, then you bring shame rather than glory to the gospel of Christ. Therefore, what we say is important, but what we do is just as crucial, isn't it? Pray for the gospel. Pray that the gospel may run and be glorified through its acceptance, through its being as widespread as the world itself, that it would go into all the world. Pray that it will. And then work to help it go into all the world. Do all that you can. And as you work to help it go into all the world, make sure that you live it in your life so that it is glorified in your example. Matthew five sixteen. remember, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and here is that word again, glorify your Father in heaven. How is it that people may glorify God through us? As they see His good works in us, they are hopefully, if they're thinking straight, attracted to that same glorious gospel that we are exhibiting in our lives, and as a result of their being attracted to it and obeying it, they bring glory to God through their sweet obedience to that glorious gospel gospel glorification that's our whole purpose for living in John 17 4 Jesus in his last hours upon this earth made this statement to the father in heaven in that poignant prayer he said I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you gave me to do that should be the goal of every child of God that goal to finish the work which he has given us to do How so? By glorifying him. How so? Through the gospel of Christ. By praying for it. By preaching it or teaching it when we have opportunity to do so. And equally important, living it in our lives. Without that third element, everything else. Everything else is for naught. I could tell others what to do with my dying breath. And regularly tell others what they need to do. But if I'm not doing it, then obviously my soul salvation is not going to be favorably affected by simply telling others what they do, but showing them as well. Pray, pray and work that the word of the Lord, the gospel of Christ would be glorified. And then he compliments them by saying, just as it is with you. But that's not the only thing he wants them to pray for. Look at verse 2. He also wants them to pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Are there still any unreasonable and wicked men among us? Absolutely. And what's the problem with them? He says, for not all have faith. That's the problem with wickedness. That's the problem with unreasonableness, those with whom you cannot reason. They're out of the way. The word unreasonable literally means out of place. They are out of the way. They are amiss You can't reason with them. They are wicked without the word because they don't have faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So Paul identifies the problem that we face in this world and the problem that we will face until the world is no more. And that is wickedness as a result of the absence, the absence of the word in the hearts of men and women. That's the whole problem. You get the word into their heart, And you've got something, don't you? You've got something. They will be reasonable. They will listen. But not without faith. Not all have faith. Now think about the time at which uh, Paul wrote these words. Remember we said the church at Thessalonica was written to by Paul while he was at Corinth. And at Corinth he had some problems with unreasonable and wicked men, didn't he? If you look at um, Acts, the 18th chapter, uh, the first 17 verses or so, you are going to see some history of Paul's dealings with unreasonable and wicked men. The Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, beat him before the judgment seat. Gallio took no notice of these uh, things. Paul had uh, problems with the Jews with one accord, verse 12, Acts 17, rose up against Paul, brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Problem, problem, problem with unreasonable and wicked men. The Jews would be included in this statement here. And yes, even included in the statement where he says, For not all have faith. Did the Jews have faith? Not really. Not in Christ. Their problem at Corinth that caused so many problems for Paul was that their faith was not where it needed to be. It was not in Christ. Oh, they believed in God, but they rejected the Christ. So they did not have the faith that was capable of saving them. Pray for us, he says, that the Word would be glorified, that it would run swiftly and be glorified, and pray also that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And what's the problem? They're wicked and unreasonable, for not all have faith. This petition for the prayers of the Thessalonians is very similar to another petition in Romans chapter 15, verses 30 and 31 that Paul made there of the Roman Christians. He wrote then, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And so a very similar expression, a very similar petition from the Roman Christians at that time that he wrote that epistle some t- few years later as the petition he makes now to the Thessalonians. And it simply reminds us that Paul had problems and persecutions everywhere he went. And as he faced those, he asked for the prayers of his fellow Christians. We need to pray for each other. If Paul needed prayers from his brethren, I know I need them, don't you? We all need them. We need the prayers of those who love us. We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ for any number of things. And we should appreciate those prayers, covet those prayers, and also offer those prayers for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's a contrast. Not all have faith, the latter part of verse two, but here's a contrast that we ought to appreciate fully. Verse three but, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Not all men have faith. And not even all men who come into the faith and are obedient to the faith remain faithful. And you and I probably have been in the Lord's church long enough to witness the tragedy of of one's faith faltering and seeing one who was once faithful abandon his or her faith and leave the body of Christ. And a tragedy beyond description it is. But the Lord is faithful. And no matter how many may abandon the faith, the Lord will will never abandon the faithful. He's faithful. He will establish you, Paul writes, and guard you from the evil one. What a comforting reassurance is given here, not just to the Thessalonians, but to Christians for as long as time stands, that no matter what we face from those who do not have faith and who persecute and seek to kill the faith of men, or if they can't kill the faith of men, they'll kill the men of faith. And That's what happened in the early church, and it could happen again here. It's happened recently in Nigeria, as we mentioned not long ago, about Christians who were slaughtered there by radical Islamists who took their lives. They'll either kill the faith of men or kill the men of faith if they can't kill their faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Does that mean that men and women won't die, that we're guarded from the evil one, that men and women have never died because of their faith? Oh, myriads have died. Myriads of of early Christians went to their Deaths were the song of praise on their lips. Had the Lord abandoned them and failed to guard them because they died for their faith? No, they were still in the faith. And they had the hope of the hereafter in heaven for all eternity. He guarded them from the evil one in the sense that they did not succumb and they died in faith. And we must do the same. Die in faith established by the word of God. There's that established word again that we've seen recently in other contexts which indicates being well-grounded, well-grounded. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. In that text, the apostle Paul to the Corinthians writes, God is faithful. Similar thought to this one here. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You've been called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. How so? By the gospel, this glorious gospel we've been talking about here. You've been called into the fellowship of His dear Son by answering the call of the gospel, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. You're in a precious fellowship. Again, back to that precious word, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, and Christ is our elder brother You are in that relationship, and God is faithful to those who remain faithful in that relationship. Does that mean that we won't have trials, that we won't have persecutions? No. Remember, Paul wrote elsewhere, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In John 17 again, in that prayer to which we alluded a few moments ago, A little bit later in that prayer at verse 15 as he is still now praying in the portion of that prayer for his apostles, he says this to the Father in heaven, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. Our prayer should be as I've said before not that God would take us out of the world but that God would take the world out of us and there's only one way that God's going to take the world out of us. And that's through the Word. you get enough Word in you, and you won't have the world in you. And that's exactly the thing for which we should pray. And we can achieve that with God's help and His blessings as we feed fervently and regularly upon the Word of God that will keep the world out of us. And then Paul in verse 4 expresses a confidence. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do. In other words, I know you're doing it now. I'm confident you're doing it now. But then he goes on and will do. I'm confident you're going to continue to do it. The things, showing that there are specific things we are to do, which we what? Suggest to you? No, we command you. There are specifics of the gospel that are absolute commands. There is a pattern, as we have often said. Hold the pattern of sound words, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Hold, hold on to the pattern. But notice how Paul is such a positive individual. He's not a flatterer. If he couldn't confidently express this kind of optimism, he wouldn't express it. Because Paul would not flatter, meaning lie, say something that was not true but where he could genuinely commend, he always commended. And he always commended those and encouraged them to keep on doing what they were doing. And he did so here. It's reminiscent of also the letter that he wrote to Philemon in that short but powerful postcard. I've called it because it's such a short letter, but what a powerful postcard it was. And listen to verse 21 of that uh, one chapter book, as he wrote to Philemon, you remember the context there is that Onesimus, the runaway slave who had run away from Philemon has has come to paul, has found him now he 's taught him, he converted him, and now he 's sending him home, and he is uh, writing Philemon, encouraging him to accept him not only now as one who's come home as a runaway slave returning but as a brother in Christ, but in verse twenty one he expresses the same kind of confidence that he expresses here in verse 4 concerning the Thessalonians. To Philemon there he says, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. That's a good approach. And What do you think Philemon thought when he read that? you think uh, that helped him to have any inclination, further inclination to to do the right thing by Onesimus. He appreciated I'm sure the confidence that Paul expressed in him and Paul knew him to be the kind of man in whom he could express that confidence. Let me ask you, are we the kind of people in whom Paul could express that same confidence and about whom he could be that optimistic? We should be, shouldn't we? We should make sure that under the same circumstances Paul would commend us and express his confidence that we're going to do the right thing that we're doing the right thing here at White Oak, and I believe we are, that we're going to continue to do the right thing at White Oak. And I have confidence that we are. Let's make sure that Paul would be able to say the same to us that he said to them at Thessalonica and to Philemon, as he said, I have confidence concerning you that you're doing the right thing and will do the things we command you. And finally, verse 5. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts. How so? right here, through the word. His prayer was that they would that the Lord would direct their hearts, and that would simply be through the Word, though it was not in its complete and final form. It was still the word that was coming to them. It was the word here of the inspired apostle as he penned this letter. It was the word of the first epistle that he penned to them. It was the word that he had spoken to them while he was with them at Thessalonica. That was the word of God. But now we have that word here. And this is the only way the Lord is going to direct your hearts into his love and into the patience of Jesus Christ. And I'm struck by this word two, because it, literally is into. Is it not the case that the Thessalonians were loving God at the time at which Paul wrote this? Of course they were. Is it not the case that they were being patient, the idea there meaning steadfast, holding up under trials and persecutions? They were. Therefore, when he says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, and I think the love there is man's love for God, not God's love for man, but man's love for God. Direct your hearts into, that is, more and more into the depths of that love and stronger and stronger in the steadfastness that Christ manifested and exhibited as he withstood the trials and sufferings that he withstood. In other words, love more and more. Be more and more steadfast as you, what, are directed into that greater love into that greater steadfastness by feeding upon this right here because we dare not slack off. We dare not leave this alone. We must feed upon it regularly and we must delve into its riches as children of God every day in such a way as to be more loving of God tomorrow than we were today, stronger and more steadfast tomorrow than we were today as we feed upon that word. The patience of Christ. I believe that's the patience that Christ himself exhibited and that the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to emulate that kind of patience, that kind of steadfastness in suffering. I believe it's the very Same thought that Peter expressed in the first epistle as he wrote to Christians at that time in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, and said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Follow His steps in steadfastness in suffering. More and more each day, become stronger and stronger, more and more each day, love more deeply than the day before. How so? By being directed into that deeper love, into that stronger stand by this. And it'll never happen. It'll never happen if we don't feed upon it. As we studied from Psalm 119 this morning in that section, a psalm that exalts the Word of God. Oh, how powerful it is, and oh, how tragic it is that most of the world has not, nor will they ever, come to appreciate that power and that transforming power of the Word of God. But not so among us. Your presence here tonight is an indication of your desire to learn more of the Word of God and to live more of the Word of God in your daily life. But it If it is the case that one is here tonight who has not begun to live that word, has not begun to glorify the gospel about which we've spoken tonight by obeying it and bringing glory to it through that initial obedience and then bringing glory to it continually as you live it out in your life, we plead with you to make the change necessary to be able to leave here bringing glory to that gospel. The only way you can do that is by expressing your belief in Jesus as the Christ repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ and being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child in repentance and confession of public sin, we plead with you to do that to allow us to pray with you and for you to the God who is faithful, faithful to forgive, faithful to restore. As we stand to sing, will you come?